all the roads seemed to suggest that I was trans. All the videos I saw was like trans this, trans that. And then the more feminine I looked, the more makeup I'd wear, people were complimenting me. Social media influencer Ollie London became known for undergoing many surgeries in his quest to look like a Korean man and later during the pandemic, a Korean woman. He was among the first influencers to join TikTok. Bad behavior is rewarded by TikTok. It gets more and more extreme to the point where you have someone like Dylan Mulvaney saying that he wants to become pregnant. Now he's sharing his story in his new memoir titled Gender Madness, one man's devastating struggle with woke ideology and his battle to protect children. You know, I feel like I had a responsibility and I woke up and I was like, you know what, even though TikTok is rewarding me, I'm getting so many brand deals and incentives, I need to stop this because it's not healthy. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Ollie London, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. It's such a pleasure to be here in Washington, D.C. Thank you for having me. There's one chapter in the book that really caught my attention. In a way, I want to kind of focus on it a little bit because it's an area I've been interested in a lot in kind of a bit of a different sphere, and that's TikTok. Mm -hmm. And you, of course, were or are perhaps still a, a major TikTok influencer. And, you know, TikTok really kind of just burst on the scene, you know, back in, I guess, 2018, 2019, and has been growing since. And you were actually, as, as I know, kind of invited, because you were big on some other platforms, to become um, this major TikTok influencer. And that actually also played a pivotal role in your own journey, which you chronicle in Gender Madness. So, so why don't we start here? Why don't we just start, get the, sort of the... the the notes around your journey like how, how did this all start so i was one of the first people to use social media back in the day when it was myspace so when i was age 16 you know this is really going back and so i always had an interest in social media and for me it was a form of escapism i could create this online identity i could use filters i could you know get that affirmation and validation and as a teen i was bullied a lot i struggled with questions of my identity so i used to turn to social media like myspace to try and feel good about myself to get positive reactions, likes and comments. And then uh, I started to use Instagram um, about a decade later. And then obviously it turned into TikTok. And TikTok was the app that influenced me most. It completely changed my identity. It you know, pushed these different ideas on me that uh, I hadn't necessarily thought about before. And um, it really became a pivotal thing in my life and uh, a thing that I was very addicted to. And you know, they say it's almost like a digital opioid because you always want that uh, serotonin rush, that fix. And you know, I was one of the first influencers to join TikTok. And I was invited to the TikTok headquarters in London. I had a creator, partner manager, um, and basically I went there and they said, look, we're, we're moving away from the dance videos, the lip syncing videos, which was what the bite dance company was all about. Um, and they wanted people to express their individualism and identities. So I was like, okay, so I need to basically tell my story and, and share that with the audience. I just want to jump in, you know, uh, they specifically mentioned that you, they want to highlight the, the sort of the peculiar nature of your individual identity. That was something that, that they stressed? Yes, yeah, so they basically said, you know, we don't want uh, influencers, we're not gonna promote this on the FYP, which is the homepage, it's called For You page. We're not gonna promote videos that are dance trends or lip syncing. We want people to express themselves. So, you know, people like me, you know, I struggled with my identity. It was out there in the public and they wanted me just to show my individualism, you know, let people into my life, talk about my own identity struggles and my personality and try and express that to the audience. So that was something 
they said was would help me achieve you know views and followers and engagement so I was like okay if that's what they're telling me to do you know I, I best go along with it that's absolutely fascinating so you know before we kind of dig deep into TikTok specifically one thing that I noticed is like your whole arc so of course you um, have struggled with identity you became a I guess a huge fan of K-pop, yeah, and you know, and and it's not just identity, male, female, but it's also racial, even racial identity, yeah. which was something that you were in the middle. But it it all happened in this very tight. I mean, it was just within a few years. I mean, I was kind of just stunned at how industrious you were with all these different changes, and I mean, some very, very extremely serious surgeries. So, like, how how did that actually happen? If you don't mind me asking. Well, so as a teen, I never liked the way I looked. I was always different to other kids. You know, I had body dysmorphia. I was kind of picked and bullied because of the way I looked. So when I became an adult, I wanted to start changing myself. And I lived in Korea for a year. And um, Korea is very famous for plastic surgery. And there is a, a, a social pressure in Korea to look a certain way in order to be happy, to be successful, to achieve your dreams. So you know, I succumbed to that pressure initially and started, you know, changing my surgeries. I wanted more of a Korean style feminine look, um, you know, because I wanted to be like one of these people on the billboards or on TV. They seemed happy. They were adored. They were loved. And I never had those feelings before. And then you know, as I started to use social media, Instagram, uh, you know, Twitter, and then obviously TikTok, um, after that, it, I started to really um, crave the validation online. So it was about, you know, every time I would uh, change myself, whether it's a surgery or, or whatever it was, I would crave uh, people validating that and telling me that you look good, you look beautiful, you look amazing. And if I didn't get that, I would think, okay, something is wrong with me. I would question my identity. And then I would, you know, start to push myself down more of a kind of a dark path, you know, more surgeries. Uh, getting addicted to this and then so I started to really spend a lot of time on social media and to really reflect on negative comments if somebody says you look ugly or I would think about that and it would actually affect me and then when I became a very avid social media user with Instagram and TikTok I really became more confused and the algorithms are very smart because they can push you content based on what you're thinking about but it was pushing me content basically saying you can be any identity identity you want uh, it's good to be a different identity. It's good to be individual. We're not all the same. Some of us are born different. So that's the kind of content I started to see. So I started to think, okay, maybe this is a sign from above that I am meant to be different and I am meant to change. Oh, that's incredibly fascinating. You know, so yeah, the pandemic really lockdowns hit in early 2020. And, you know, we see a lot of trends and it's very hard to kind of really, um, I guess, find specific causality around them. But one thing that happens is TikTok grows a lot, like very substantially. Another thing we see, you know, a great increase in even like suicidal ideation among teens in America. That that was a shocking statistic I discovered. I learned that from Dr. Scott Atlas. There's all sorts of things happening. And I guess I want to chart that time for you because this was actually kind of in the midst of everything that you were up to, right? Right. So, you know, in 2019, I was a very avid TikTok user. And this was a time when TikTok started to see an explosion in growth. So they uh, gained around 693 million downloads in 2019. Then fast forward to 2020, when you had the pandemic, that had doubled to 1.2 
billion global users. So you know, everybody was taken to TikTok during the pandemic because everybody was locked at home. Nobody was socializing. So we were missing that basic human interaction of, you know, speaking with people, getting that validation, getting compliments. So we were missing that. So, you know, me and many other people, millions of people, we took to TikTok as an outlet. And, you know, I started to spend many hours a day, up to eight hours a day. And I would just be scrolling endlessly. I might not even be interested. I'd just be scrolling, scrolling, scrolling then the algorithm would start to push me more and more unusual content of people, you know, emotional people having basically mental health breakdowns. And we saw a lot of that um, spurred on in the pandemic because people weren't interacting, they were locked in their houses. And so we saw that mental health deterioration. And I also experienced that because, you know, locked at home, you're not allowed to even go for a walk. You know, what can you do? So I was online all day long on TikTok. I'm seeing all these other people struggling with their identities and sharing it. And then suddenly they're getting love getting validation and because I'd always questioned myself I was like well I want to feel love too I want to feel that validation and it really did become an addiction to getting those views and getting those likes in order to feel validated and to feel like I was worth something so that really spurred it on for me and for many people and I think we can really attribute this growing trend and this social contagion of people transitioning or people identifying as non-binary trans and all these other identities to that time period being locked at home for you know up to two years, being on TikTok, I think this is when we really started to see this explosion in teens being very confused with their identity. So just to clarify, most of your procedures were post-2020? So I started doing surgeries in 2013, and that was initially to change my features and trying to develop self-confidence. So I started with a nose surgery. Then I started to get a lot more surgeries around 2018, 2019. Actually, I had a jaw surgery, a chin surgery, which feminized my face. Um, and then during the pandemic, that's when I was, you know, I was struggling with my identity. I was sharing it online and I still wasn't sure of who I was. And you know, all the roads seemed to su suggest that I was trans. All the videos I saw was like trans this, trans that. So I'd already had those questions throughout my life. I wasn't 100% sure. Was I born in the wrong body? Why do I always feel different? And so that really spurred it on. And um, during my TikTok addiction, you know, I, I did uh, research becoming transgender and the processes. And then I did eventually, just after the pandemic, I did eventually a book and actually go through 11 procedures in one day, which was facial feminization, because I'd spent so much time on my phone. I hadn't been socializing. And then, you know, the more feminine I looked, the more makeup I'd wear, you know, the people were complimenting me and I wasn't used to that. I was used to you know, bullies, people putting me down and saying I was worthless. So that was a good feeling. And I think I became addicted to that feeling of, you know, um, getting that attention and people telling me that I look great and you look better as a woman, you look, you know, feminine and people saying I look like a girl. I thought, wow, this is actually, maybe this, these people are right. So, so it wasn't your purpose to look like a girl? Um, so I did uh, struggle with uh, severe body dysmorphia and I did struggle with questions of gender dysphoria as a teen and as a young boy. I was, you know, always more feminine. I was more interested in girls toys, uh, you know, makeup, Barbies, things like that. So I always had those questions, but I never necessarily thought about transitioning. I never thought it was a possibility. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up in a slightly different time, early 2000s. So it wasn't something that was pushed on young people. It wasn't something that even seemed like an option. So of course I had these questions about, you know, I'm more feminine than other boys, why is that? But I never had that kind of thought of, okay, I can change this, I can actually become trans. It wasn't until later adulthood 
when you know I saw all these things online and saw it seemed so easy and all these people seem so happy. And that's the key thing is like mm. people online, it's a facade. You know, people pretend that they're happy and they show off the best parts of their life. Doesn't necessarily reflect how they're feeling. But when you see these people transitioning and they seem like they're much happier, they're smiling, uh, they're getting praised, you know, they, they seem like they're happy. So you think, okay, maybe my solution is to do what they've done and transition. So, you know, and then for a time I did feel happy, but for a short time. And just so we, I understand the whole picture. So, and how does the, explain how the sort of, I guess, racial transition. Um, and I, I haven't, frankly, I wasn't aware of many examples of this, frankly, um, sort of fits into this picture. Well, so that really goes back to when I was living in Korea and, um, you know, I, I be, you know, became in love with this culture. I thought it was a beautiful culture and it was the first time in my life where I actually felt free. I felt free to express myself and this is a culture that's predominantly driven by looking a certain way, by having these, you know, perfect aesthetics and the perfect symmetry in the face. So that's where it all began and, you know, I, I went back and forth to Korea several times and I just had an affinity with that culture. So you know, when I started changing myself, I started going for more of a K-pop feminine look. You know, when I was seeing things online where you can identify in any different way, there's something called Two-Spirit. Uh, there's all these different identities. You have some people identifying as, as animals or furries and I was like, is that really that different? And you know, now I see that it is. Um, but at the time, it really kind of begged the question that these trans activists seem to have is, you know, you are allowed to identify however you want, except when I said, you know, can I be a Korean guy? And like, you know, people were strange with that. Well, that's so that's the, that's interesting, isn't it? Like, why? Why is that any different than uh, identifying as any number of other you know, this complete, what is it, spectrum or any number of infinite possibilities, right? Well, that's that's what I thought at the time. I thought, how is it different? And that's why I thought, you know, let me just say that I feel this way because why not if everybody else is praising people that have these different identities? And uh, it, does, it does beg an interesting question, you know, what is the difference if somebody can say that you can change your gender or some people say you can change your sex even though you're biologically born a male or female, you know, some people say that men can get pregnant, men can menstruate. You know, what is the, why is what I was going through so extreme to these people? I want to talk a little bit about, go back to TikTok here. So, you know, your in, engagement with the app to create content, right? As opposed to just, you know, sort of passively scrolling, taking stuff in, getting ideas and so forth. We know, we know that can be incredibly potent and we know that it can be very addictive. And in fact, it's designed to be that way. And that's in every social media. But what about this process of being the creator, right? You, you talked about how um, you were told that you, you, you should want to sort of showcase your individuality, showcase your, your, your unusual, I guess, unusualness. So, so explain that to me. Yeah, so I had a meeting around 2018 at the TikTok headquarters in London. And, you know, I also have for Instagram, you're assigned partner managers. The, the bigger you are, the more followers you get. They give you kind of creative partner managers. So they basically speak with you every month. They give you ideas. They tell you, OK, this is trending right now. This is what you need to do if you want to beat the algorithm and succeed. So you know, when I had meetings at TikTok, they would always tell me, you know, to express your personality, show off your different identities. They said the more unique you are and unusual, the more engagement you're going to get. So it's going to help you grow on the platform. And then indeed, they will help push that on the algorithm for you. You know, so if you basically play by their rules, 
you're going to get promoted and you know you're going to see that huge increase and another thing that TikTok did uh, for me and for many creators is they give you an incentive to create content so you know, there's a thing called a creator fund so people get rewarded for making videos based on the views and that doesn't necessarily add up to much even with millions of views but you know for some people that that can be an incentive right if they're you know making a few hundred dollars a month doing you know just being in the house or especially in a pandemic, or some of them are making thousands or tens of thousands if they're successful. Um, and then you also have TikTok Lives, which I used to do all the time, and you get rewarded. You get, you know, fans send stickers, which converts into money. So that's what TikTok does to creators. They hook you in there. They promise you, okay, we're going to promote you. And indeed, they do push you on the uh, recommended page. And then you get these incentives to keep you on the app. So it gives you an incentive to, you know, be a little bit crazy and to express yourself in unusual ways because we see time and time again these uh, prominent uh, TikTok influencers. Dylan Mulvaney is a great example. They start out just being normal. You know, he was an actor, he was a comedian, doing some fun kind of funny videos, a little bit crazy. And then suddenly you see this progression when their followers go up, the engagement goes up, they start to behave more and more bizarrely. And that is promoted by the algorithm. So with me, you know, I was showing my identity struggles very bizarre at the time in retrospect and that was being promoted so that's what we see is you know bad behavior is rewarded by TikTok it's you're given an incentive to behave like that so when we see influencers acting crazy and then people sharing their transition journey it gets more and more extreme to the point where you have someone like Dylan Mulvaney saying that he wants to become pregnant because it's for views it's for attention it's for validation then he wants to you know then he says he's a lesbian then he says he's using tampons it is uh driving people to behave in very weird ways because it's giving them a reward and an incentive. Well, I often, you know, describe TikTok to people. And of course, I'm interested in from the perspective of the Chinese Communist Party having particular influence of this app, like, you know, by, by its own laws and also by its own policies of civil military fusion, for example, and so forth. So very, very potent weapon. Um, in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, potentially. And so everything you're talking about, if, you're, if you wanted to send destabilizing messaging into the most popular you know, social media app for young people in America, you know, it, it sounds like that's actually even what's happening. It's not even like what you would want to do, but you're t from what I'm hearing from you, like, do, you, do you subscribe to that view? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look at the parallels between, so you had TikTok started to become very big in 2018, and then you have the pandemic the following year, and that's where the user numbers started to, you know, multiply by hundreds of millions. People had that addiction, and, and TikTok again, you know, gave incentives for creators to create content, uh, encourage people to use the apps, and that's why also you see the the videos are very short. It's about attention span, so it's you know five to fifteen second videos. That's about just what young people can manage these days with content to keep their attention. So you, know, you have five second videos, scrolling, 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 and you just see some really weird things on there. And that is something that is fed on the feeds for many, many people daily. And, you know, I think all it takes is TikTok, understanding you as a person, your vulnerabilities, what you're thinking, then they're gonna push that content on you. So, you know, in groups, you have groups of girls now, predominantly girls wanting to become trans, uh, and this explosion in teens not understanding what a man is, not a woman is, having no sense of masculinity or femininity, really just breaking down the younger generations. And uh, there was a quote from Lenin, um, communist uh, leader, and he basically said, uh, just give me one generation of young people 
and you know he could influence them and basically turn them into communist foot soldiers and i think that's what china is looking at you know they just need one generation they need to plant that seed get them when they're young indoctrinate them and then these people are never going to be functioning you know adults they're always going to have these struggles they're going to be so preoccupied they're not going to be interested in politics or what's going on in the world they're going to be just so consumed by their own struggles that they're not going to you know be good at contributing to society whether that's career-wise or you know skill-wise they're always going to be kind of trapped with that internal conflict you found that that I mean, you're, you're, I'm expecting from everything you're saying that you're kind of describing your own situation, but somehow you kind of saw your way out of it. So tell me how that happened. Yeah, so I actually started using um, TikTok and social media a lot less frequently um, last year. And, you know, I was really using it very heavily. I mean, when I would look at my screen time for the day, it was 13 to 14 hours some days, some days 16 hours. And a lot of that was on predominantly TikTok and then Instagram. So I was consumed by that. And then I got to a point where I was going down this destructive route. And, you know, I had a lot of issues with my family uh, because of the journey I put them through. It was very, very tough. So I had to I had to stop. Basically, I was like a, a train about to go off the tracks. So I had to stop, put the brakes on and, you know, find a solution. Started going to therapy, started going to church, started using TikTok and social media less. And I actually found my happiness went up by tenfold just by limiting my social media use. And you know, now I do Twitter and stuff, but it's not like it was before where it was just, you know, pictures and videos of me. It was almost, it becomes very narcissistic and we all use social media, but it becomes very narcissistic that we always want praise, love, and we always have to do something extreme in order to get that love. So, you know, I stopped doing that and that has, you know, helped increase my happiness it's helped me realize that you know just focus on what's within inside you know it doesn't matter what's outside doesn't matter how many likes you get how many comments it's about who you are as a person and also that you have a responsibility every single one of us has a responsibility to be a good role model as adults you know and so many kids look up to influencers more than they look up to teachers or doctors they respect them more so if an influencer says something and it could be very harmful teens will just follow it blindly like a cult or, or almost like a religion so you know I feel like I had a responsibility and I woke up and I was like you know what this is bad I shouldn't be projecting this even though TikTok is rewarding me I'm getting so many brand deals and you know incentives I need to stop this because it's not healthy so it's a combination of self-reflection combination of I can't keep going on doing this because I'm going to end up dying on the operating table you know we didn't have social media 20 years ago you know I wanted to go back to the old me that was happy that was content that was you know I was very shy I was insecure but I was you know happy um, with just being you know a young boy basically you know one of the things you touch on a little bit in the book is the difference between the Chinese version of TikTok and the US version mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about that. I think it's what you just said is very pertinent to it. Yeah. So there's a huge difference between the Chinese TikTok, which is known as Douyin, uh, versus the westernized version, which is known as TikTok. So the, the key difference is the content. So on Douyin, you have uh, videos of skill sharing, educational, you know, children in the classroom, uh, learning things about the military. But it also promotes collectivism, nationalism. So we see a very, very uh, key difference with that. Um, and I think that's why, you know, people in China, you don't see people transitioning or changing their gender or their pronouns. It just doesn't seem to exist because these kids aren't being fed that online. It is not allowed. It's not posted on there. They only have things that uh, promote, 
you know, skill sharing, educational things, and also the family unit. You see, you know, families on, on Duyen uh, sharing their lives and happy families. You don't see that in the US. It's all about individuals. It's all about these teens. And quite often we see teens cut themselves off from their family or TikTok is isolating them because look, they're on their phone all day and you know they become detached from their family they're almost taught that having a family is bad you know having a wife or a husband is is not good you need to be individual you are special it's trying to tell kids you're special you're unique you need to adopt a different identity to stand out it's almost like in duyen they're really focusing on maintaining social cohesion and you know you could even say you know indoctrinating around that do you see what's happening on tiktok as a kind of indoctrination I mean, it definitely is a indoctrination. I mean, look, even in the Chinese version, Duyin, it does promote certain things that are, you know, beneficial for the Chinese Communist Party, and they obviously have control of that. You know, they can control anything in in China. So, um, I think uh, in terms of Western TikTok, we have seen these trends of kids changing. You know, and you've got now 11-year-olds going on puberty blockers and hormones, and people get rewarded. People like Dylan Mulvaney has 10 million followers on TikTok and they get rewarded for almost bad behavior for projecting these uh, uh, insecurities on kids. And, you know, Dylan is seen as a symbol of success, right? Because kids see, okay, he's got a brand deal with, you know, Mac or Maybelline or Bud Light, and he's really cool. We need to be like that. So kids now aspire to be influencers. Around a quarter of all children um, want to become an influencer instead of a veterinarian or a doctor or a scientist. And that's the culture we live in. So we have to think that we know that China um, ultimately has control over the data of these kids and that it's also, you know, I believe it's able to listen to people and use the camera lens, you know, that has been reported multiple times and uh, it's very clever at manipulating people and, you know, it's a very smart AI algorithm. Uh, what happened to you when you decided to speak up for uh, uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang? I've always been very vocal about speaking up for oppressed minorities, you know, whether it's the Rohingya people in Myanmar or the Uyghur people in Xinjiang province in China. So I was always speaking up about them on Twitter and even on YouTube. And um, I remember doing a TikTok live once, you know, I used to have a lot of people coming on my lives and they would ask me questions. I'd have people from different countries, different places. And, you know, sometimes they'd want me to talk about social issues. So, you know, I remember seeing a comment and it was, please speak up for the Muslim people in China. And, you know, I was very much aware of what was going on. So I said, look, um, you know, it's it's awful in Xinjiang, there's over 1.6 million uh, Muslims in concentration camps. Within a few seconds, the live was cut. And it said I had a live ban suspension for a week. So I wasn't able to do lives for a week. And there was no reason for it. It didn't say, you know, you've posted something sensitive or offensive or you've violated some terms. It was just you're banned for a week, no explanation. So I realized then that you're not allowed to talk about certain things. You're not allowed to expose certain things that are critical of China. Because, hey, we know China is all about censorship. Their own people don't know what's going on. But it's the fact that this is uh, now in the West. This is an app in the West that we're using and it's censoring content that we're seeing, I think that's very wrong and, and worrying as well. You say you have some regrets about possibly influencing people in the wrong direction. So how, how are you dealing with that? Oh well, yes, I do have some regrets about that because look, I you know I have over 2.3 million followers across various platforms, over 1.1 million on TikTok, and you know, I had billions of views over the last few years on TikTok itself. So you know I, I have reflected, and I think you know perhaps some of my identity struggles that I projected onto TikTok may have influenced young people. 
to think that this is totally normal to behave and this is okay and you know plastic surgery is a great thing but I've realized that's wrong because I've realized now you know I should be encouraging kids to accept themselves to find that inner confidence from within and you know not to want to radically change themselves beyond repair and beyond recognition I don't think that's healthy for kids and that is the generation we live in you know we live in a generation where it's all about looks appearance and we all want to be special we all want to stand out and get that validation but I think you know you can be unique you can be yourself without the need to change without the need to adopt these identities and I also try to encourage kids you know I have a lot of young people following me on TikTok but don't use it too much you know don't spend all day on TikTok because it is unhealthy and you know kids should be socializing they should be doing sports and things like that so I feel now that I have a responsibility and I do feel some sense of guilt from sharing that and it was you know a mental health struggle I was going through but I was sharing that online and you know I do have some guilt about that because you know I could have influenced someone in a in a negative way and so you know you've also gotten involved with the U.S. uh, you know I guess it's political action committee it's interesting right because you're based in the UK but I guess you're in the US a lot so 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 tell me about that yeah so I've been I'm spending a lot of time in the US uh, back and forth for the last 10 years so I'm very familiar with the politics here with what is going on and um, what I've noticed really recently is there's a real push to take away certain rights and spaces from women uh, particularly when it comes to women's sports so I've been um, a spokesperson for Fairness First Pack. Um, Caitlin Jenner's the other spokesperson. Basically, it's about trying to restore fairness in sports because everybody has a, a right to participate in sports. You know, everybody loves sports, and I think it's important to be very inclusive. But there are ways of doing that without taking away the achievements of others. So, you know, one of the, the key areas of focus for Fairness First is um, protecting women's sports. So, you know, we shouldn't have biological males that have an advantage. It's not about politics, not about anything else. It's about they do have an advantage biologically, whether that's their muscle mass, whether they have you know stronger bones. So it's about finding a solution that you know women do not lose their places, women don't lose their sports. Then maybe we have an open men's category. You know, a lot of uh, young people that maybe become trans or non-binary, they almost feel that they have an entitlement to women's rights or women's spaces. And it's about saying, no, you can't just take away the rights of 50% of the population. Everybody can coexist, everybody can have access to certain things, but it's about doing it with balance and fairness. So, you know, having, for instance, with the um, UCI, which is the cycling governing body, they're having uh, trans people compete in the men's open category now, which is just about fairness. So nobody is uh, outcast, nobody is unable to participate. It's just about fairness. So that's that's the kind of work I'm doing now. And I think it's, you know, it's very valuable. I speak with athletes all the time like Riley Gaines, Paula Scanlon and you know, speaking up for women um, and for athletes because you know these people they train their whole lives for that one moment and to have that taken away by someone that has an advantage you know I, I think that's very wrong. A number of people including US politicians have advocated for a complete TikTok ban and indeed and there's you know different uh, US agencies and departments and states that have actually banned it on government devices and in some cases, um, more more than that as well. So, you know, wh- where do you stand on that? Well, that's a very tough thing to answer. Obviously, President Trump did try to push this. We've seen the state of Montana that has passed a ban, um, and Governor Gianforte, I believe, has signed that ban. Um, but there are now lawsuits looming to try and uh, stop this because they're saying a lot of people rely on TikTok as an income. So I think that's why China is smart in offering these monetary and financial incentives. Um, so yeah, Montana has passed that ban. Obviously, you have uh, Congress 
uh, spoke about a TikTok ban and uh, there have been numerous things that government officials aren't allowed to have TikTok on their devices, which you know, rightly so, if, if the Chinese Communist Party can be listening to what a Congress member or senator is saying, that is very dangerous for national security. So I think uh, it's a very complex issue. I think the original TikTok ban that was proposed uh, had some issues. You know, I read through the bill and it was there was a lot of things about censorship of other parts of the internet, not just specifically TikTok. So I think, you know, there needs to be a lot of work on that and stuff. I think uh, there are other options like President Trump did try to force a sale of TikTok to a US company. But then even a US company, it might be a woke company. Um, so how, how do you differentiate between the Chinese Communist Party and some woke company that has the same kind of agenda as China? So it's it's a tricky one. But I would just say to individuals, you know, spend less time on TikTok or just, you know, don't use it at all. Just live in the real world. It's much more ha nice. You know, go for a walk, go visit an animal park or a farm, go horse riding. That is much more valuable and, and rewarding than, you know, dedicating your entire life to social media, which is very toxic. And it really does affect our mental health and our perception of the world. How, so you mentioned, of course, that you you know, found faith along the way. And I guess, I, so how how did that play into your decision-making? Yeah. Well, so when I needed um, to find God the most, it was a kind of pivotal time because I really was struggling down this dark path and, you know, doing all these extremities. So, you know, part of that period of reflection that I had was about trying to find myself. So it was about going to church, leaving my phone at home, so no TikTok, no social media, and just find some solace, uh, find some peace of mind, and try to unlock the old me, you know, that young boy that, you know, wasn't, before I was a teenager, wasn't confused with his identity that much, you know, that was happy running around in the countryside, in the woods. It was trying to unlock those repressed memories. So going to church gave me that clarity, and it also gave me a purpose in life. It gave me a purpose that, look, I'm, I've got a lot of followers, I've got a lot of influence. I need to do it right. I need to do it in a good way because that really made me realize that I'm actually, you know, it's almost sinning. You know, you're projecting something bad onto the world. You're actually having an impact. It's not just me on my phone posting something. It's actually impacting people around the world. So that, um, you know, going to church and finding faith helped me get that clarity and get that realization that, you know, I need to follow the teachings of Jesus and and be a good person. You know, of course, you've you've kind of changed or adopted your identity many times mm. over the last while, especially you know in that sort of very sort of concentrated period. Yeah. And yeah. Um, do you think this is the end of your identity search for identity journey? Is it, or is, do you think you might still change? Yeah, I actually get asked that question a lot. But, you know, the first time in my life, I'm actually really happy. You know, the thing that makes me happy and, and fulfills me is helping people. And I didn't have that before. It was, like I said, it was kind of a narcissistic pursuit, just like social media is kind of narcissistic because we're all posting about ourselves. We want that attention. So I've gotten out of that trap. The real happiness is when you can actually contribute to society and help be a positive role model and actually, you know, help save some lives or help save some young people from going down you know, their own struggles and just say, look, be happy with who you are. You know, you're a great person. Just try to work on yourself from in internally. How have your uh, fans reacted to these changes? Um, so it was actually very mixed. So when I, you know, said that I'm just going to be me again, I just want to live as a man and just, you know, kind of detransitioned, it was kind of mixed because I did get a lot of hate, um, you know, and 
a lot of people get that, unfortunately, especially these young detransitions. They get so much hate because they speak out. They share their you know, struggles. And I think it's, it takes a lot of courage to do that. But yeah, I mean, it's been mixed. But I've, I've had so much love in the last uh, year, really, because I've had, you know, parents reaching out to me and saying that thank you for speaking out. You know, your advice is very helpful. Your tweets are very helpful, you know. So I think that that's, that is um, motivating. And then when I have, wherever I am in the world, I have, you know, women coming up to me in the street, you know, sometimes elderly ladies in their 80s, um, you know, and then I have young teens and coming up to me and just saying thank you for actually doing something. You know, I've followed you for a number of years and, uh, you know, I, was, I saw you were struggling, but now you're actually helping people. So that is really rewarding when you actually have, you're making an impact in the world. So, you know, that, that makes me happy that I'm able to help uh, people and try to encourage people to you know, be positive and whatever you're talking about in life, whether it's talking about helping animals or helping save the ocean, you know, do something that's impactful, whether you've got one follower or a million followers, we, we can all make a difference. You've mentioned that parents are contacting you. Um, is there some generalized advice that you have for parents? You know, of course, you're a bit older, yeah. but, uh, but I, I think you maybe understand some of those journeys more than the parents, right? That right. The kids I'm, are going through. Right. So, I mean, I do get so many parents reaching out to me all the time. And it's a really tricky situation to be a parent because, you know, parents want to be loving. They want to help their kid and help them navigate through something. But uh, parents often don't know what to do in these situations. When a kid comes to them and says they're trans, you know, some parents, they don't know what to do. They don't know whether do we take them to a doctor? Do we tell them, oh, you're going to grow out of it? Or do we, you know, try and transition them? So, it's a very difficult situation for a parent. And, you know, we can't blame parents in all cases for transitioning their kids. Sometimes the doctors can coerce them and tell them this is the only option without treating the child's, you know, maybe they have severe autism. Without treating that, they misdiagnose them. So you know, I'm, I'm not one of those people. I'm not blaming all parents that transition their kids. There are some parents that are dead set on doing that. They, they have a boy and they want it to be a girl and then they will uh, transition them. And I think that is very harmful to do that and push that onto a kid. Um, but I would just say to parents, you know, it's very important to uh, be aware of what's going on, particularly on your child's phone. And you can have parental controls. You can have cutoff times. Maybe 9 p.m. is the cutoff time that your kid is allowed on social media. And even, you know, giving them a limit. I think that's quite healthy, you know, maybe giving them a one hour limit because in this day and age, kids are smart. They're all, all going to go on their phones. You can't suddenly just ban them for being on their phones. They're going to rebel. They're going to go crazy. But you can perhaps say, look, as a reward for you know, playing soccer today or for your piano lessons, you're allowed to go on your phone for an hour and speak to your friends. But I think parents need to have control of what these kids are accessing, whether it's TikTok, whether it's what they're seeing on Google. There are things out there that are pushed on kids uh, that are vulnerable and they're very susceptible. So, you know, keep an eye and always, you know, keep an eye on what's going on in school. That's another place where we see indoctrination happening and um, some school library books pushing kind of very sexualized content on kids and about transitioning. Just be aware. I think that's the most important thing. And um, parents, it's a hard job being a parent. You know, um, I've got two godchildren, so I know how hard it is. And um, what you need to do is just, um, you know, don't just give them the iPad or give them the phone because maybe you're tired or you're busy. Include the kids in maybe the cooking that you're doing or even cleaning the house and you know, always be engaged with the kids instead of just, you know, oh, I've had a long day, just hand them the phone and, you know, you have no control of what they're seeing. You know, I just remember there was one thing I really wanted mm. to talk to you about because you mentioned that you had, you know, in your life, just you know, serious psycholo psycholo psychological issues yeah. that you were dealing with, right? And one of the things I've, I've, you know, I guess studied a bit now is that 
many, many, many kids that experience gender dysphoria also have multiple psychiatric comorbidities associated with that. You mentioned autism. There's others uh, very common. Um, I guess my question is, you know, it struck me that how, what a terrible approach this affirmation as the one way to, to, you know, to approach um, a kid with gender dysphoria would be because in the end, if you're, if you're only focusing on that, those underlying psychiatric comorbidities just don't get addressed and you end up with someone going through all these changes but actually never dealing with the original problem. And I, I guess I, I wanted to get you to tell me your thoughts about that reality. We see a huge correlation in uh, kids being misdiagnosed. So uh, children with uh, severe autism are six times more likely to be diagnosed by a doctor with gender dysphoria. Uh, you also have significant numbers of kids that have um, pre-existing psychiatric conditions, whether that's you know their severe depression, suicidal tendencies, uh, severe ADHD, bipolarism, schizophrenia. So you see there's a big, big correlation, but doctors don't look into that. They just think, hmm, this child's got a problem. We can fix it. Let's give them some hormones. So they see it as a, a quick fix for these problems. So they start with the puberty blockers and then the hormones. And then in some cases you have, you know, at age 15 in some states like California, Oregon, Washington state, girls can actually have double mastectomies. So that is a really serious thing because that's something you can never repair. And a lot of these, um, you know, girls are being made infertile basically or sterilized. Um, so, you know, they don't understand these things as a teenage girl. So it's, it's very sad they become an adult and then they finally realize they can't have kids, they can't breastfeed, they have complications. Um, and, you know, doctors shouldn't be prescribing this as some kind of miracle cure for these kids' struggles. They should be helping them with whatever they're going through, whether it's depression, whether it's anxiety, whether they're being bullied. Help them with that instead, instead of just going down this easy route of giving them a prescription and saying, here you go, this will make you feel much better because it, it certainly won't. Well, Ollie, this has been an illuminating conversation. Any final thoughts as we finish? Um, but I just think it's very important for young people to limit their time on social media and also not to um, question their self-worth based on what they see online or how many likes they get. I don't think that's important. We need to teach young people just to accept themselves. And uh, you know, there are many people speaking out now regarding this. And what we see on TikTok, which TikTok is the number one propagator of this gender ideology stuff, we see that anyone that questions that or speaks out does get censored. Um, you know, of course, we see it on other platforms as well, but TikTok specifically drives this gender ideology, so then it also suppresses anyone that questions it. And you know, I've known people that have been banned for you know, just women saying that we don't want men in our toilets and, and things like that. And they get banned for that because it's hateful con content or harassment and bullying. So I think while they push it, they also try to suppress anyone that does uh, question the official narrative that they're pushing. Well, Ollie London, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Thank you, a real pleasure, appreciate it. Thank you. TikTok did not immediately respond to our request for comment. Thank you all for joining Ollie London and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek.